well, let's just get into it. So when did you start at Amazon? Oh, it's been a while. Uh, so I started eight and a half years ago. So it was my first job out of college. Um, I interned at Amazon in my last year in college. And basically, I was in this like really small team that was working on advertising. And we would go out to lunch every day and uh, as a team. And it felt like it was a very small team working on a very big problem. Uh, and so I decided to come back and help, you know, grow that team. So I've been ad advertising like ever since. Sure. And about uh, like what year was that? Um, so I interned in like 2009 and then I started my like full time in 2010. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So really right. Was Node 2000, like 2010, 2011? So Node, um, so the first presentation that Ryan Dahl gave was in 2009. Um, and uh, it was like the first presentation anyone's like where he showed something's working with an API um, uh, that was partially working. Um, and yeah, so 2010, it was like very early stage, like Node was now available here to, I think, still build your own binary, things like that. But it was there. And so, in, so in 2011, you did you know immediately like you what like what were the existing services or was it like something entirely new? It was entirely new. So in 2010, when I joined, I actually had not done like any JavaScript or anything like that. Um, for the most part, like I I tried building my own HTML pages before, but and I tried tinkering with uh, PHP and ASP.NET and things like that, but. Uh, I had not really done any JavaScript. Uh, so when I joined full-time, my first job was to actually uh, work on the front end of advertising uh, at Amazon. So essentially all the code that was responsible for display advertising on every page. And I had no idea what I was doing. So, uh, so what happened is a um, few months, uh, so... Um, Few months in, the, there was this one guy that they hired um, who came with a lot of experience in JavaScript, and he was like, he was, uh, he questioned everything basically. And, oh, that uh, sounds annoying. No, that was uh, that was awesome because uh, he came in with an understanding of JavaScript that I thought was way ab above uh, anyone else, um, and even senior engineers there, and uh, and so I worked with him, he wanted to refactor basically um, all of our code at the time, which was, in his opinion, was uh, was not using a lot of the common best practices, was not very minified, mm -hmm. was not compressible as much as a result, and there was just a lot of problems with it. And the core of it was it wasn't using uh, like just JavaScript properly. And so I was on that project, so I learned, like I, I would say most of, you know, my uh, interest and then like what I learned in JavaScript was from that one person and it just like I just kind of got introduced to a lot of things uh, in that process um, and so um, uh, yeah like uh, sorry I forgot what the question was <laughs> <laughs> no that's no that's 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 actually a really great basis for like it's interesting because it's like sort of like the more things change the more they stay the same where it's mm -hmm. like okay so you have a lot of people writing JavaScript who don't have very much experience in it. And then, but they have all these new problems to solve. And then they're running into, I mean, I guess you, before you had someone who was very experienced helping you, I guess you, they were like, 
some like pretty bad pain points just based of like not really thinking about how you could scale it. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I think um, most in most of the SDEs at the time, uh, I would say, and you know, I, I think the problem was uh, every company I think had to make a transition from uh, when JavaScript was just a toy. It was uh, the small like. Uh, sugar you could add on top of an HTML page, but HTML was majority of what you did. Uh, like CSS was majority of, uh, was some part of what you did. And every company had to make a transition and take it more seriously and take, you know, like look at it as more than a scripting language. And I think uh, Amazon slowly was going in that direction, but at the time, most people who were on it had like not exactly adopted or learned about, you know, things like Ajax and, I mean, back then, search, Amazon search did not, uh, was a full page reload. Like every time you searched, you filtered, uh, it would reload the page. Sure. And, uh, you know, Amazon had to make a transition to doing Ajax. So yeah, like a lot of SDs back then, I would say there, there wasn't a way, or at least um, they, they didn't end up learning JavaScript as a language that, and all the new APIs that you could use to build web apps as opposed to, sort of just like regular like HTML pages. So as a result, I, I found that a lot of the stuff they did was uh, was not coming from a place of necessarily understanding JavaScript very deeply. Yeah, because this, this is what's interesting yeah. is that... But they were great engineers, man. Yeah, like, that's the thing. It's, of course, yeah. there's, yeah. of course. <laughs> that, uh, what's interesting is, is when people talk about the front end, they're like, yeah, we really need someone to work on our front end. And it's like, I don't understand. This is all Java. And they're like... Yeah, isn't that what a front end is? Like, isn't it? It's a Java, it's a templating system which makes database calls. And it's like, is that, you know, renders this HTML as a string? And it's, it's, it's a very different understanding of like what a front end is. And in that context, it's sort of like, okay, I'm, I have this template and I'm writing like 15 to 20 lines of JavaScript here and there. And a lot of times where I'm writing it, I probably even shouldn't be, right? Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. I'm writing it to like fix something up at the last minute. That like is just like reflecting some like problem with my server. Like, yeah, like I, I found yeah I found two camps of SDs off uh, like in my experience at least like there was always um, either there was sprinkling JavaScript with HTML, uh, like you're saying, uh, or there was uh, there there were certain SDs who were uh, were trying to code in JavaScript like they would in Java. So I found a lot of cases where they were trying to find you know syntax at least that looked a lot like they were doing classes. Uh, so you would end up with, unfortunately, I mean, you would end up with code that was very unminifiable and, uh, you know, with long variable names and uh, right. sorry, property names yeah. and things like that. And, you know, like, uh, so, so, so I would always, yeah, I would notice that the early stages, I would say, you know, in the beginning, it was a lot like that. So um, when did, so, I mean, it sounds like sort of Amazon is moving in this direction, but that it was just almost kind of like, you know, good fortune that someone who took JavaScript seriously mm -hmm. as a language was there and said, I think that, you know, this new like Node.js thing would be like a good, a good fit for our, you know, like for our like problem area. Um, like how much was it, I guess, how much was it sort of like one champion of the technology and then other people who liked it versus like overall, you know, part of like an overall strategy of like language diversification? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, at the time, what happened is once I, I got lucky in like, yeah, like a lot of ways. Uh, and so once I learned uh, a lot of like JavaScript from this one person and I started doing projects where 
I I off, uh, what I found was I ran into uh, a few different problems automatically because I was trying to do a lot of front end um, that maybe other teams at Amazon at the time weren't doing. Uh, and so a great example of that, and you might remember this, but uh, is the closure compiler. If you use that mm-hmm. a while back, it was completely made in Java. So if you wanted to extend that in any way, as a, you know, I, I could go do it if I wanted to, um, but most uh, front-end developers at the time who did not come with the Java expertise wouldn't be able to extend uh, it in meaningful ways. Uh, and likewise, uh, there was this constant struggle of um, where do you draw the line in terms of what a back-end team owns and what a front-end team owns, which right. was maybe a bigger issue. And so, uh, I, yeah, so what I found was uh, as a result, we you know we got like a lot of frameworks and things that um, essentially were like some kind of middle ground. Like if you think about JSPs and sure. Spring, right? It's it's essentially trying to make that find that middle ground where a back end team and a front end team can work together, but they don't satisfy either of those two camps. <laughs> yeah, I was I was gonna say like it's it's like you could call it a middle ground or it could be like a swamp. You know, like it's this. <laughs> like with this weird mixture where no one feels very comfortable with what they're doing. And in some cases you have something that's very monolithic and it's like, okay, we're going to solve all of the problems in this domain. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but we are going to do so with a syntax and like a logic that is uniquely our own and our requirements just mean that like, you're never, ever, ever going to get a useful stack trace. Like that's just how it is now, right? Because, yeah, we, no, because we're doing so, we have, we have so many moving parts. Yeah, no, that's true. And so you, yeah, you got into this problem where uh, as a result, like no one felt like they were doing uh, work that they were very happy with necessarily. So as a result, like having a team like that was, which was very common, you know, uh, I think in many companies at the time, uh, it was it was clear like there was probably a better way, and Amazon had like by then moved to as everyone knows like a service oriented architecture where everyone had to for the most part build APIs, uh, so that there any functionality that they work on and they own would be easily accessible and extensible through that one contract. I, yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about service oriented architecture because that to me that seems like such a like such a powerful idea and Amazon seems like they were sort of early champions of that idea of like, okay, we, we don't want to have to do these like back, you know, like this like backdoor deals where it's like, okay, you give me this root SQL user. And in return, I'll tell you the repo where this is like, so the idea of teams being able to communicate at the API level. Um, so when you were there, was that, had that switch over already happened or is that sort of. Yeah, I think. For the most part, that switch was, I would say, mostly happened underway. It was definitely preceded my time uh, from my what I understand. Uh, like I know a lot of people who are, uh, you know, who are uh, who have been at Amazon for like twenty years now, and so they tell me of the good old days when um, they started making the transition. Um, yeah. So when I interned, um, what I noticed was that there was still a need for a framework for building services that could talk with the same protocol. And it wasn't unfortunately HTTP at the time, as in it was not like REST had not yet been a mm. uh, been a um, um, was not adopted necessarily. And so at the time, it was uh, it was kind of a, like people were they had services, 
but there was a, another transition needed so they could have um, protocols and um, APIs that were easy to understand, discover, like know what it can do and cannot do. And that was the big gap. And so in an intern, uh, there was an internal framework that was, that was built that allowed a lot of uh, teams to uh, build services that could speak the same language in, uh, in terms of the protocol they used. Um, and, uh, and, and that, you know, uh, was just taking off. Um, so during my internship, I built a service that used that framework as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, so at the time, essentially what I noticed was everyone was building services using that one framework and that helped a lot because everyone had like a common language for right. looking at it. Yeah. You get a, a nice, cause that's a big problem too, even beyond like discoverability mm -hmm. is like what even even in the same company internally, like, oh, we're using different authentication schemas where we have different requirements for our data confidentiality, you know, level, which then affects these downstream services, which maybe, you know, maybe they're not using the confidential part, but because of how your service is set up, you can't split up the safe stuff from the restricted stuff. So now it's like this other, like, this other, like, whole, whole problem. And that's, I mean, that's even assuming, like, that your response object is what you want, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, oh yeah, we send you a string and then you need to compile it. And it's like, like there's, you know, it's entirely possible with an ad hoc API to like have something that really was made for one use case. And when they were told to open it up, they did, but it doesn't really, it still, it still doesn't make any sense. Right, right. So you can use it, but not really. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, that's, and so then how did that, I guess in the early days of, node to kind of talk about like pushback a little bit was there like some concern that there was like some advantage with the existing like java you know services that was going to be lost if you started having like node you know more node backends yeah um yeah like when i started i think uh, so the what happened is around 2011 i think uh i i saw like i found node.js and i was uh, I sort of uh, was fascinated by it and um, it just as a new technology and that it could run JavaScript on a server, there's just like a lot of opportunity just with that. Uh, but I found generally people who like um, I talked to at the time before I, I thought it was a good idea to adopt this or for uh, Amazon to use it were there were really two camps. Like one was uh, they because we had many other languages we could use on the server and have been for a while, people questioned why did we need JavaScript, a toy of a language sometimes on the server? Like what possible good can it give us, right? And then the second camp was um, was uh, sort of um, uh, looking at it as, um, uh, oh, it could be a powerful abstraction for front-end teams sure. that maybe did not exist before. And uh, and generally, I found people in these two camps. Um, but the but in the latter camp, I would say people were still very pessimistic because they they saw they weren't sure if this thing could work, if it could scale, at especially for you know uh, like uh, you know even for Amazon at right. the time. I mean, it's, right? it's, it's very like, unproven, right? Where it's very like very cool, where yeah. you can say, okay, there's this cool mm -hmm. you know there's this cool talk, and okay, there's C plus plus under the cover, and like and like. Uh, there's V8 and it's really fast, but no one has actually, you know, you can't say, oh, well, it worked for this other company the same size as Amazon because that's never happened. It's never happened. Uh, it had never happened before. Um, there were actually 
uh, very few companies using it at the time as well. Um, and it was just, I think it was getting, you know, it was very early stages. Um, so what I did was I, I just started learning about it more and you sort of trying to use it. And the thing that surprised me the most was the first time I installed like Node.js and got it up and running. I like, maybe this is just a flawed memory at this point, but it was just really fast to start up. And it was something I was never used to because I, you know, came from, uh, you know, working in Java and, and uh, C++ and that sort of thing. And a lot of the, you were kind of used to this compilation stage always. No, it, it, it yeah. really does. I started out with JavaScript in the browser. So like I have an expectation of seeing results instantaneously. And then when I got into Node, I would, you know, a lot of times if I had a question on a module or something, I would just fire it. I would be like Node, name of the file and fire it up and be like, okay, what's going on? Let's, you know, let's have our debugger. Let's have our REPL and like really interact with it. And when I saw people build these things and they say, oh, well, the build's going to take four hours. I was like, but so how do you, how do you know if it's right? <laughs> right, right. Or how do you know if it's what you want? And a lot of cases they go, well, we have types. And I go, oh, so that must be great because... You, you know, obviously, if it's if all your types are right, then it couldn't possibly have any other bugs. Right. And, and you know, there's definite benefits to type yeah, checking yeah, yeah, in sure. a lot of contexts. But the idea that having all of your the idea that having, you know, like build time type errors isn't still you still need to do a lot of debugging. You still need to have like weird issues you need to look at. You, you know, you're still going to have a lot of tickets and not having a REPL and not even being set up to have a REPL, you know, having projects which are set up in such a way where no one even thinks about the idea that you should be able to run it locally and get, you know, figure out what's going on within a couple of seconds. Yeah, um, like the the REPL and the interactivity was a game changer, I thought. Um, and again, like, it's not a new idea. Um, like oh, yeah. I Lisp. remember, yeah, like, like <laughs> I, when I was in college, I was using, yeah, it's like, and, you know, more, even more, like, uh, like, uh, more so like Python, you know, I used to use it all the time. Um, uh, like I was, I was doing like machine learning and, uh, data science in college and that was kind of the, the way to go for the most part. Um, uh, but yeah, so I started learning about Nord, uh, started building some basic projects on my own. So I would like write a lot of internal tools, um, and then just send them to people on the team and see how it goes. And, and so then, you know, I, I gave a brown bag. We, so we used to, you know, we, we used to, um, uh, not that year, but I think the year before, um, uh, there, there was like an internal meetup that started happening for web development, um, mm. every year. Now it's a, it's something that happens every year. And, uh, I, I thought, you know, why not? Like, let's, let's do a presentation. And, and I remember it was like, you know, it was maybe 20, either 20, yeah, I think it was 2011, uh, late 2011 or, or either 2011 or 2012, but. I gave my first presentation on Node.js at the time, and I was essentially going through the basics of what it is. And at the time, you know, NPM was was still like not fully formed. I think it was, was still way new. Yeah. Uh, so I was just I I decided to not do too many slides, but I instead just opened up the terminal and I started being like, okay, if you want to read a file, like here's one line and <laughs> yeah, you like, can do it. Yeah, like FS read file. And I was like, look at look. The content, yeah, yeah, right here, one second later. Exactly, and and at the beginning, everyone was skeptical uh, before the presentation. Is and like I could see their faces, you know, they were they were like, ah, like you know, what's this gonna be now? But once I started the the demo, I noticed like everyone's like everyone was like, what? Like, uh, 
for them just seeing javascript running and also i think the speed at which the response was coming and like it just like i think a lot of people's minds started changing then and and so that was the first presentation i did i think probably the first uh, at amazon from what i for at least from what i remember um and i got a lot of people just interested based on that but it was still they had not seen it in a project yet yeah and so for everyone it was that was the question and it was it was still those two camps but so it was still like i didn't have a good you know explanation or a good use case for where should we use it where should we not use it um and then you know most people are not very familiar with event loops uh um even in the browser to yeah, be fair I've, right? i've encountered this i mean even you know i guess you're like five or six years later where somebody writes something they go okay now how do we do like how do we add threads and it was like every this is 3000 lines of code and every single line of it is like intentionally and aggressively synchronous like why did you do this and they're like well i'll just add something like i mean i guess we could spawn child process but like this is not right, right you managed to write thousands of lines of this without reading any documentation or like absorbing anything from the ecosystem i think like that's one thing of like with like early pushback and skepticism like how much of like the I guess the skepticism, like how much felt like sort of like good faith criticism of like, okay, well, you know, this is untested. Like, are we, or should we actually want to do this? How many JavaScript developers are there really, you know, versus just kind of like, I don't want to learn new things, go away. With that, I mean, I'm not, I, that, that's, you know, that's the very like, <laughs> I, I, I assume everyone falls on a spectrum between those two points. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I would say people on my team were very supportive um, overall. And, you know, they, my, even my manager at the time, you know, was after I did that presentation, he came in and he was like, if we wanted to rebuild our like advertising system, like in Node, would that be a good idea? <laughs> and, you know, I was pretty shocked by that question just because I did not expect him to uh you know buy into it so quickly um but yeah no for a lot of people it was still for them it was really one thing i think um not seeing a project uh, you know uh, at amazon and then likewise i think the related issue was who is going to um support this long term uh, right. because you know it, we we don't have teams necessarily that are focused on java development or you know ne not necessarily focused on it like it's sort of like it happens out of a business need or uh, right. that sort of thing so the hardest challenge was okay like even if i uh even if everyone is just convinced that this is like a good idea there was no no community at amazon there was no one and so there's a feeling yeah. of like a very low bus factor because it's like very oh low bus here's factor. this cool thing that yeah. you made but then if anything happens to you, like, does, you know, do we just lose all of the value? Yeah, like, or, it just seemed yeah. like, a, it just seemed intractable at the time, like, how many people's minds would you need to change and, like, have them be invested? Um, and, you know, who would fund all that? And, you know, we had projects ongoing and uh, using Node often would mean, you know, to use a lot of our internal services and things like that. There were, there were no packages for any of those things. So are you willing to spend the extra time in bridging those gaps and 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 so it was it was quite a it, it it seemed like quite an ordeal and quite a huge blocker yeah to drive adoption. so was it kind of i mean was the answer just that you know you and your team kind of went in and sort of built you know looked at the java and just said okay i'm going to write a port to node so that we can do this just like as you go or was there like a bigger plan of 
you know, making things known. Like they didn't, did, did any of the teams who didn't provide, you know, whatever, like whatever they needed to in node, um, did they particularly care or were they just like, yeah, like whatever. Right. You know? Yeah. I think, I, I think at that time, I think the early, I, I, I think a few teams, at least, um, there, there were like people who saw the potential, um, but then I had to figure out how we could make that sustainable. Um, and again, I, you know, I was just like a year and a half in at Amazon. So I ha- didn't have much, you know, as much industry experience to sort of use sort of historical, I don't know, historical context to see, okay, you know, how do you do those sorts of things? Sure. And so my next best thing was to look at maybe other languages at, at Amazon that, you know, had either grown or survived or uh, just never been adopted or completely abandoned. Mm. So this is interesting. So you actually yeah. did some kind of like, I guess like some some research and like mm-hmm. historiography of like, okay, what is, you know, everyone is really excited about Ruby in two thousand nine, and then what happened? You know, like because I mean, I guess that's instructive, right? Is that if you have, you know, one dominant language, which I guess in Amazon's case it would have been, I guess at the time you were there, I guess Java. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, like Amazon, like. Uh, Culturally speaking, and I think this has been talked about, I think publicly as well, that Amazon is not tied to any one technology. For them, it's, uh, and and I think that's rightfully so, it's mainly about solving problems for customers and whatever technology fits, we go with it. So we're not tied to any technology. Uh, and I've, not, I've seen this to be true in general. And so um, as a result, it's, uh, yeah, at the time, you know, Amazon had things in C, C++, they had things in Java as well. I would say both were equivalent, but Java was the the dominant one for sure. And then when I started looking back, um, I found that you know Amazon had some people championing Ruby and um, Ruby on Rails uh, specifically there, and um, Python as well. And what I noticed was that with Ruby on Rails, um, it sort of kept going for a while, but then Python definitely did not catch on. Hmm. And so I started looking into like why, and again, this was just a lot of uh, evenings, you know, looking at uh, prior code commits and people who are yeah. no longer at Amazon. Yeah, for some half, you, yeah you <laughs> half, like you see a really beautiful wiki and mm-hmm. then you're like, I would love to get in contact with the author. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, no longer, but it's like, yeah. oh, okay. So yeah, so yeah. So what I noticed was with Ruby on Rails, um, there were a few central projects that were, you know, started, you know, in early days of Amazon, I think. And they just became very cent- critical tools for, you know, like uh, we have a few tools uh, internally that uh, that they just became something you used, you know, every day, that sort of thing. And so eventually just uh, there was a team formed around it and they, they through that project, they were the champions of Ruby on Rails. Uh, for a while, I think, uh, I, I don't know if it's still the case or not, but it's still the tool, you know, the tools still exist. But then... Python, what I noticed was like one person, right, was writing a bunch of packages. And one day, I think he just left, I think. And then that package was just sort of like defunct. A lot of few people were trying to use it. But yeah, but you don't have anyone who... So I think that's a really key insight for if you were, you know, what will determine... You can't just go this language because like, you know, obviously overall Python's doing great, Mm -hmm. right? Like Python's in a lot of places. So it's not as... Whereas, you know, it's, it's not as though the larger history of the language necessarily tracks one-to-one within an organization. But I think there's something there where the idea is that you can't just be the single prolific champion that you have to That's build right. buy-in. 
yeah so you needed people. yeah no that's right so you needed um so my conclusion was that that you needed really two things one was um ideally your current team and a project that would be important enough that um you can continue investing in it and that would be always a use case you can point to and say you know we did that and it's a real business and it's uh, something we use every day and the second thing was some sort of network effect so either get a few people from different teams interested in this and hopefully you know um they would decide to in the next project that happens they would decide to sort of champion the cause and then become the evangelists in their own teams sure so that you're, was yeah, kind of the two so things really showing people uh in a lot of cases i think people talk about it almost like all languages are the same all developer experiences are the same it's just like either very specific use cases or fashion and the problem is that those are both in there right like what's mm -hmm. cool is also a fact like what's cool or like what you can hire developers for is in there and then also how well it maps to a specific specific problem is in there but then there's also a lot which is just like everything in the middle which is like well, this is developer experience right and it's right, like right. does this do you feel good when you're writing it? Do you enjoy it? Do you feel yourself like growing in terms of like mastery and like being able to anticipate and solve problems? Or do you really honestly feel kind of lost? Right, right. Um, yep. Or, or not even lost, sometimes not lost, but just everything feels very slow. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, yeah, it's when you go between a lot of these different languages and the ecosystems, it does like uh, you you sort of get a sense of, a lot of these trade-offs that they have made and you can tell what is built for developer experience versus something else. <laughs> it's just where you're burned. Yeah. Um, and, and you can't escape it. And, and I think that's always the problem too, is when you ask a question, like why was it built in this language? Mm -hmm. You know, a certain percentage of the time you can say, well, these are the attributes that we needed. And this mm -hmm. was very important. You know, like if you have like high quality 3D graphics rendering, it's like, well, we wrote it in C because it, you know, it needs to be fast. There's mm -hmm. a lot of computations. It's very expensive to do. But then you look at a lot of things and you go, well, you can't really say that this makes this as better as like Python or Java or like, you know, you know, Node.js, JavaScript. Like you can't really, or, you know, Ruby. Like you can't make a hard and fast distinction. And then I think it, in a lot of cases, it really just comes down to like what the experience of that team is. Y yeah, I think. I mean, I think in a lot of cases, it's still, I think each language still has, um, outside of the language, there's some core benefit that's um, easy to identify. So like you said, you know, if you if you need a bare metal access um, using CC++ or anything that provides that would be, uh, would make sense. Um, but, you know, in if you were to use uh, Ruby or Python as an example, all said and done, right? Like um, there've been, people who have written very scalable things in those uh, systems as well. Sorry, on those languages as well. But if you wanted to deal with the DOM or have something that can understand um, the browser really well, there's nothing that can come close to JavaScript just because a lot of the JavaScript that can run on a browser can, is, is just relying on APIs. If, if, emulated would work the same way on the server. Sure. And that, yeah, yeah that's, there's yeah. a lot of really exciting stuff happening with, um, like server side rendering mm -hmm. and, you know, and then like using that for like static site rendering um, in part, because especially with some projects like, you know, with like react, you, you can actually build the entire thing virtually. So you have your components, right. you have everything yeah. and you're like, 
and then like you 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 don't even realize that you're in like you can actually kind of especially with like Babel, uh, you can kind of hide from people who are more front end focused that they're even in Node land, right? And right. then all of a sudden they access window and they're like, why did I get an error? And it's like, right, right. oh, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> Uh, those import statements are getting converted to requires. Like your your default export is getting converted to module that exports. And yeah, if you want to do a dynamic require, go for it. If you want to access the file system, go, like all of this is happening. But in terms of developer experience, it's like you're not just getting isomorphism of like you can run this code in both contexts. You're also getting like developer experience isomorphism where like someone who doesn't think about the backend as much mm -hmm. is able to be you know, just as productive or write things either like not 80, 90% the same, which I think is really. Yeah. Like I, I remember like, you know, back when in 2010, when I came in, like the, all the front end code, the way it was being tested to run unit tests, um, it would, it would try to run Selenium and it would have to have a real browser because there wasn't really a headless browser per se. And and so it would literally open up Firefox on the, <laughs> on my on the Linux box, and then it would run the tests in the real browser, and then try to capture. Oh, it wouldn't even capture, but it would try to capture the results, and but you could see it in the browser too, and and it needed a real browser. So if you had, you know, at the time I remember there were like a few hundred tests. Uh, it would take it, you know, it could take as much as I think like an hour to finish. Um, because every test required, you know, the browser just like to yeah. start, refresh, like capture the results. So all of it was, believe it or not, um, the best of my like knowledge uh, was all timer based. Like as in yeah. you start the browser, tick, 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 you wait for something, tick, tick, and, tick, and, and then you capture it. You know, and that's so it. interesting because like the sort of like whenever you see any kind of like set timeout or whatever, or like whenever you see anything like that, that's usually a sign that something has gone wrong or that you are putting in a very ugly hack because what's kind of core to like the node experience the idea of like okay you have this you have you have your events and mm -hmm. it's it's asynchronous non-blocking and if you need something to come after something else you should actually wait for that event to end not just go well it usually doesn't take more than three seconds <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, no, there was a lot of stuff like that and that's a great example where, uh, you know, because we didn't have a a way to like model or emulate something well uh, on the server side that, uh, you know, so you had to come up with all these, uh, you know, hacks that everyone was okay with because the, nobody thought it would, you know, taking an R for unit tests was, you know, some, some people just got used to it. And, and for, you know, for a lot of people, I think, who are really, you know, like developing on the browser for them, it was like, wow, like if I want to make one change, it's taking so long. So that's where the developer experience, like I would say, also helped people, I think, see the way. Yeah. Uh, with, with whether it's Node oh, or, sure. or React, or, or, because, you know, for, for everybody else, I think it was like, it, it they were used to, uh, you know, compile languages and the fact that things just took long. It was a fact of life. Right. And it's sort of, it's sort of like, I think there's, there's definitely a danger there of, bringing people in and especially like a lot of people who come in and it's, you know, they're hired right out of school mm -hmm. or they have, you know, more like limited experience somewhere smaller. And so their assumption is that, okay, everyone here is an expert. Everyone here is like the way that they do it and the way they think about it is the way that it should be done. And so you don't want to like, you don't want to like challenge, you don't want to say, Hey, the system that you guys built, and I know you're all senior engineers and I know that I'm 20, 
three years old and I just got here, but I hate it and it sucks. Like you, like you, you don't want to say it. You may feel that way, but also you, you have to prove it. Right. right. So it's like, you can't just, it's really easy to criticize the system. It's so easy because yeah, no, every system true. has tons of words and tons of shortcomings. So to like provide an alternative, it's almost better to provide the alternative before you criticize it and then let them make the criticism. Like, yeah. like, like, yeah. like allow them to draw their own conclusions. Um, which is, I think actually something interesting with the culture of Amazon specifically is teams have so much autonomy in terms of their choices of, well, and, you know, in many cases, they have autonomy in terms of the choices like tooling and how they want to do things. And so it's entirely possible for a team to be like extremely innovative, mm -hmm. but not proselytize, right? Like they don't, they yeah. just do cool stuff and they don't tell right. anyone about it and their stakeholders are happy. Yeah, no, Amazon, yeah, because of it, the way it's set up is and because of the culture of, you know, sort of going after the, the problem, but not necessarily um, trying to, you know, everyone needs to do the same thing is not, you know, is not, is something Amazon like does not uh, inculcate or try to do. So it's all about, you know, can, you know, what is the problem you're trying to solve and sort of go with it. So yeah, you have this like extremely distributed and I would even argue sometimes decentralized um, sure. company where you have a lot of teams and yeah, like every, everyone is uh, like back then I remember when I told people that, Oh, you know, like, um, I have direct access to every host that I'm running stuff on so I can optimize however I see fit. And it, it, you know, I learned a lot because of that. Uh, people would always be like, really? Like, you yeah, know, at a lot of companies from, you know, even back then, I think like 2010, 2011, I still remember, um, like at Google, I think from what I recall, um, they already had like essentially what I can only describe as a sort of a serverless architecture in that you didn't really know which host you were going to run on and you didn't know if you were going to share resources which is with like, someone else. And this is like, this is almost like the proto cloud. Oh yeah. And yeah. what's funny is that people presented this as like a utopia and mm -hmm. it was like, it's not a utopia if there's like a system library I need to install and you have a different version. This is like, this is a nightmare. Yeah. Like, it just, yeah. It just depended on what you were doing and how routine it was. And oftentimes I think at small to medium scale, you don't really, it just depends on what you're doing. But if it's routine, like there's certain use cases that uh, that everyone does that serverless or that sort of setup is very good for. Sure. And so I think from what I recall, like Google, you know, at the time, they were, they were already, you know, I think using containers and they had their own container, um, uh, like internal sort of container tech that they were using. Um, and so, you know, when it compared to that, you know, Amazon was just like, you know, you know, order, you know, how many hosts you need. And yeah, you know, yeah. Just pick, it, pick out your <laughs> machines, pick out their attributes, which is what I loved. Like is, you know, it's sort of like you, you could, you learned a lot of skills that were not specific to the company anyway. And it felt almost like it, it felt like you were still doing like a scrappy startup almost in that sense. You know, it was, it, I, nobody ever, it was, it was very, it, it was very, uh, it was like, okay, how do I get hosts? Oh, you need to pay for them. And yeah. it yeah. was just like, <laughs> yeah, you have, you have like, nothing was given. Yeah. Like nothing was given. You had to, you know, like it, it wasn't a, like just sort of like fire and forget kind of system. Right. You know? But I mean, you're conscious of your resources. Yeah. Very like conscious, you're, you're, very conscious. You yeah. as a team, or, you know, in some cases as an org, you're managing your own resources. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about your own fleet. And so you're, you're getting more 
knowledge about how they, you know, how it works. And, and yeah. in some cases it's bad where it's like, oh, the certificate expired. Oh no. Like, yeah, you you knew, yeah, you get exposed to every small thing that's happening in your system. And, and so uh, as a result, if you, you know, wanted to do a side project tomorrow or like just like do something for fun, you knew how to set that up. You didn't need like the exact same environment to be true yeah. outside. Yeah. Or, that, or that's like, a big deal, I think. Or I have set up these server racks very specifically. <laughs> okay. Do not touch them. Do not install anything. Right. It's like you're, you're getting uh, actual, like you're getting actual ownership. Yeah. No, that's at, right. at a more like that's fundamental right. level. And like, you know, there's of course like, I guess now at this point it's sort of like, okay, you have more ownership of your, con you know, like your contain, you have more ownership of your Docker config. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you can still pick out your host. You know, you can still pick out the attributes of your hosts. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, we still do it the same way. And, and the thing is, it's all about, uh, this is something that's really cool is I think it's a lot, it's all about choice. So for every team, right, they have to make their own choices in what technologies they want to use, what they want to maintain, how they want to run their hardware. And and the um, the amount of flexibility we are getting is only getting better. So, you know, because of AWS and, sure. and just the general cloud revolution there is you know so we can choose to do serverless if we wanted to but or use you know any services that are available but we don't have to and so actually we can kind of tie these two together is like that idea of like getting to have you know have more ownership learn more generalizable skills and then also using like a, a you know a newer technology that maybe in some cases has a different uh, use, you know, some like a different user base or a different, you know, like fan base, right? Where, where it's right, somebody's right. like very excited about this technology. Like how much does that impact or how much long-term impact can that have on hiring and retention? If you're saying, you know, we have more choices, not even just, it's not as though you said, okay, we're switching everything from Java over to node. Mm -hmm. We're now a node shop, death of Java. You're saying just that you have options now. You have, if you're more excited about one technology or another, mm -hmm. you can, yeah, like I think I, I I just looked at it as another technology that was available for us to use, and there were specific problems I think that it can really serve well. And so I spent like essentially then the next year or two and uh, basically a lot of evenings just you know figuring out like what can this be good for. Um, and obviously the front end use case was very obvious, uh, but but at the time you know React and those sorts of things did not exist yet, so there were some abstractions that were clearly missing. That would be very beneficial. So, you know, I was into, you know, like we were uh, we were exposed to all these other frameworks, like Backbone was the big, uh, mm -hmm. the big dog at the time. Uh, and um, but the but the one thing I did want to see is uh, effectively, I think uh, event loops were very, very new in that if you think about it, when you use JavaScript on the browser, for the most part, you're dealing with synchronous APIs. Like, you know, you, you ask for an element, you get it. Right. It's no, like never, no, exactly. you don't that's, get exposed, right? So that's, that's kind yeah. of interesting as well, because on the one hand, I say, okay, well, Node.js almost has this like built-in audience of front, you know, web developers, front-end people, people who've just been working with JavaScript exclusively on the browser. And I feel like that's, you know, that's still a good hook, but then also Node is very different. You know, if you have very someone different. who... Yeah. Right, you know, I remember the feeling of writing with Node initially, and I was like, I wear my hands, like I can't, I don't, I, how do I grab? Like, I, it was like a very difficult, like it was difficult for me to think about what this server environment was because I was like, okay, where am I? Like, where's my window object? Where's my document? What am I rendering? Where am I putting this? Right, all of these things, and then also things like, um, yeah, like 
doing these like asynchronous calls and and callbacks, which is, uh, you know, when you call an API, you go, okay, I'm going to call this and then do something with it when it returns. But then all of a sudden I'm doing these like asynchronous events and I'm actually, I'm like calling against myself. I'm like, wait, why would I want, like, I remember thinking to myself, why would anyone want to access the file system asynchronously? Right, <laughs> like, right. And yeah. it's like, it just, my, my brain, even with JavaScript experience, my brain was not really thinking in async. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, after a few teams started, you know, looking, you know, who attended that talk I gave and they, uh, you know, I thought like nothing would come off it. It was just kind of a random thing. And then, but like a lot of teams were, there were people who'd come and uh, set up like meetings with me and they would be like, oh, I want to use this thing. And then like a few months later when they had like done some work uh, to just, you know, just testing out how it works, um, I found that the, the just a general concurrency model of event loops was just way, you know, I, like they just didn't fully comprehend what that would mean. And so I'll give an example, right? So, uh, the first project we used it in where it was going, um, you know, it was, uh, it's kind of like a high throughput system and immediately, like, this is like the first thing I noticed and, uh, is that logging, if you log something, <laughs> it goes out of order, right? So mm -hmm. you log, like, you know, you have like many, many things happening at the same time, but they are all out of order. Oh, sure. Cause they're to, all, you know, they're all finishing. Like, they happen at yeah. different times. It's like yeah. bursts almost. You can always think of it that way, right? Like this burst of different particles that are happening yeah. almost. And, and as you notice them, you like, no, you'll see like them, console yeah. log, like job complete. And then like two <laughs> minutes later you see error. And it's like, who, oh, yeah. you guys finished separately. And I made an assumption, like it, you really do have to like retrain your brain to think about it because yeah and and here's the crazy part right at the time i was looking at all the logging libraries out there and to the best of my knowledge like none of them had yet um done anything about um uh, they hadn't done nothing specific to manage that use case in that if you lock something in those out of order oh you're sure out of log basically yeah. <laughs> yeah, like my, i've seen some like <laughs> where it's like well just log it with a timestamp, and then uh -huh. you can like grep it later you can you can sort and grep it with just a few simple commands later and it's like okay but yeah and so there were some common things people would do in at least in java and uh if they did multi-threaded especially is um is they would use the process id or something that would always be the prefix, so you could filter it really easily. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, the code in those threads were often going um, in synchronous order, so most of your logs were still sort of like batched together. Um, but you never had this like thing where literally you see like <laughs> hundred lines, and every line is like not related to the next line, right? Or in the next five lines sometimes. With, with yeah, with like Java's model, like threading, you you have a much like simpler way, like. Mm -hmm. You have a lot more reassurances that, like, think, you know, you're like, you can, at the very least, you could be like, okay, let me split, yeah, like split by process, or like split by threads, and go, okay, even if they're happening sort of, you know, in parallel, I can still view them separately, and I can, you know, I can turn it into a like a meaningful chronology filtered by, like, yeah, the things yeah. I care about. Yeah. So, like, uh, yeah. So we, you know, we uh, in my team, like, you know, there was enough freedom again that you know, I, you know. Not just, I mean, I think my team also kind of took the leap with me in this sense, uh, which was uh, grateful for, is uh, we decided, oh, like, you know, we want to build, uh, you know, a few things, uh, a few of our projects using Node.js. And if, um, like, you know, I was like, if stuff comes up, you know, some blockers come up, like, oh, you know, we don't have a library for X, you know, I'll, I'm, you know, I'm willing to go write it, but are you guys willing to take the leap with me and... <laughs> 
um, help me out or, you know, at least like, you know, uh, operationally, you know, own it. And, and, you know, you know, people were like, you know, they were excited. And so I think a lot of them to their credit, you know, like they, they kind of took the leap with me in, in this regard. But then know? also having someone who says, I, you know, when someone says, well, what if we have to do this and it'll take longer? If you say, okay, but I personally feel strongly enough about this mm-hmm. approach that, you know, I'm going to cover it. You know, it's like, I'm offering you insurance. You know, in a, in a way, which yeah, is you're like you're yeah. saying, like, if something unexpected happens, I will do whatever needs to be done to overcome this problem. Because even if it takes, I still feel better about this than you know whatever we were doing before. Yeah, and and so yeah, and I, you know, I think yeah, like my team definitely supported me uh, in that, uh, which which was awesome because uh, you know, but again, it was it was it was a little bit of a gamble in that. Uh, I mean, we w- we would run into you know. We could run into things where just just uh, there was no support, so you had to sort of figure it out, and it'd take you like a week to figure something out. Um, but also, my managers, you know, at that time, uh, rightfully so, were like uh, concerned that okay, you know, I can either spend my time, you know, building these projects and shipping things, or I can spend this additional time, you know, doing all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, to yeah. It's like oh, Node. now I'm in the yeah. Node core figuring this right. out, and like, and it's like okay, but. We just want a crud app, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so I had an argument once with my one of my managers, uh, like a healthy argument, uh, where uh, you know, he asked me that same question. He was like, So, you know, we need to ship this thing. Um, if somebody asks me, um, like, oh, like, you know, like, you know, like can you just focus on building this project? Why are you, you know, furthering this ecosystem or whatever for this tech that's unproven at Amazon? And at the time, what I told him was very simple: is like if everyone took that view, like nothing would take off ever. But the, like, yeah, that's which was like, interesting, right? Like it's that's <laughs> that's such a that's a really funny answer because it's like you can give them that, and people go, "Okay, yes, but I understand an aggregate, but mm-hmm. I just want to have a normal, safe career. Why do I have to take the hit? Why do you know? Let others innovate. I've got a mortgage. No, like, it was like, a lot like that, you know. Um, and so what I told him was, look, I, you know, if I will take the burden of, you know. Do you know working extra if required to bridge all these gaps, and if in six months time, or uh, because uh, you know we thought it would you know things would be more stable by then that sort of thing. If if in a few months time you know he he feels that oh like you know things are not stable at all or yeah things or, are not or going just running into lots of problems yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah. yeah I was like you know what like you know again take the gamble with me and you know let's you know we can totally rewrite this thing in Java no problem or whatever the you know depending on which system it was it was not necessarily one or the right. other no no I think um, that's again like it it's you do have to if you really believe in something you want to like be a champion of something new you have to stick out your neck a little bit mm-hmm. because uh people one thing about sort of established solutions, like, you know, really, really mature ecosystems is that pretty much everything you're ever going to do has been done before in some form. So you're, you're like, you're limiting the scope of like your potential problems and you're limiting the scope of like your unknowns because it's like, okay, well, I saw someone else do this before right? with this language, with this, like with these libraries, with this version. So we're not completely jumping out and then discovering something, you know, on like, you know, like if there was a hidden pitfall that was really bad, someone else would have already fallen into it. Yeah, yeah. And and for a lot of people, I think it was, again, the same deal, which is there were technologies that existed for building websites and doing high throughput systems or anything like that. And it's just like for everyone, it was the same thing, which is like, why why do I need to use this, you know, new tech for building something? For a lot of people, existing tech was just 
it was fine. It was good. Like but that's again, that's like, no, like, no, like you was, said, like that's yeah. everything. You know, if people yeah. accept this argument, then we would still, be, you know, it's like there were computer scientists who argued at the beginning that, you know, like that moving from uh, what if, like Fortran, there was like, <laughs> like Cobol, they were like Cobol and Fortran are, are you know mm -hmm. are wrong, like because we want to be doing math, and this is computer science is basically math, and programs mm -hmm. are math, and once you introduce these words and these abstractions and it's like they were probably like it seems like they were wrong right like in aggregate or, or that you know that ultimately developer experience and developer productivity long term are going to outweigh you know almost anything else or, or even if something kind of you know i think i think like ruby on rails sort of has hit its peak and trough and it's i don't know if it's coming back but it certainly was very influential you know like like the rails approach a lot of people like I think there was that's been a huge influence uh, the way that a lot of people think about you know what they like the, what they how they promote their language and even how they build their frameworks and even like things like docs you know like I, right. I think Ruby so even if your specific thing doesn't necessarily stay doesn't become dominant it still can have a really positive yes, ecosystem yeah. influence yeah no um, yeah no and and that I think that's exactly what ended up happening which is once we had a few projects running what happened was essentially things started getting patched, you know? So I personally like spend a lot of, again, a lot of evenings, um, you know, just building libraries, rolling out libraries for just standard things um, that were required at Amazon uh, that worked with a lot of the internal services or tools or configs or things like that. And one by one, we were able to run something where, you know, I had an entire um, like a, almost like a very simple rollout plan for what what do you need to run a Node.js app? And it was very simple. Um, and what, what I noticed was uh, once we set it up, you know, we what I noticed was on my own team is we had this very clear-cut abstraction at that point where the front-end or other, yeah, like the, the part of the team that was front-end owned, you know, a, a web app completely and they could decide what the contract was with the, API that somebody else was developing, they had to not even be involved with the, with the website at all. Yeah, which, which is, was very very powerful. Yeah, I mean that it, it's unbelievable what that can do for your velocity because mm -hmm. you, all of a sudden you know backend changes ongoing. You know ongoing can't break you. Backend like staging can't mm -hmm. break you. You can build out what you need, even if that's not going to be the final API. You can mock out everything that you need for your own development, and so you can really get like very, very large gains by cutting down on communication overhead. Yeah, and and likewise, uh, what I also noticed, uh, which which was something I'd noticed before, which is um, your APIs remain very clean as a result too. And a lot of like like logic that was only needed for, you know, the view layer or like rather what was needed on the website never creeped into the API in any capacity. There, there was something I saw a lot happen because those two two concerns were intermingled yeah, it, because it was one team. Yeah, like I think that's what's so interesting, right, is that separation of concerns within, I mean, most people will sort of at least pay lip service to separation of concerns. Very few people go, no, I want everything to be coupled together in one giant ball of death, right? <laughs> like, like, so that if any part of it fails, the whole thing fails, right? Like, mm -hmm. But at the same time, people have very different ideas about what separation of concerns means and, you know, like if your REST API is like returning, you know, like 
long HTML strings that then you're just being asked to like set in the front end, you probably don't have separation of concerns, right? And it's like, yeah, you can call our API and get um, an H4 tag that has five classes specific to RCSS. And it's like, well, okay, but what if I have a different one? They're like, oh, well then you just parse the HTML, this loose spec, by the way, like, Mm -hmm. which you can never fully, you know, like you can never parse yeah, people have like, a hard time like uh, thinking about separation of concerns uh, because it's it it seems very abstract. You don't know how to draw, d- put a decision boundary sometimes on like yeah, what what it is. It's always a gray area. Yeah. Like you you never mm-hmm. like you know I go back and forth about things when I'm looking at like data for like static site rendering. I go okay, do do I want to sort before I even hand this data off to these components, mm-hmm. or is sorting part of the component? And then it's like okay, well you know, like what, what shape makes the most sense. And then I think about it as a developer, I go, okay, even beyond like, do I want someone to be able to look at the final UI and then to look at the data before we've thought about our front end at all? And is it a good thing for these to be highly correlated? Like, can someone, I, you know, can someone identify like something, you know, can they look at the UI and go, okay, why is this third item weird? And then look at it, look at their data and go, here's the third item versus being like, okay, wait, so it's an object. And then it, 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 like, okay, you do something with a string and then it, it I, something happens and then this component does this. And then depending on if it's a Wednesday, like, you know, like that's. Yeah, no, that that's a, it's actually, um, yeah, like one rubric I've seen uh, work really well is, um, and it's way similar to what you're saying, which is, uh, is you can think in terms of like, who's, who is the customer of whatever you're building. And if there's multiple customers, that's how you decide how to separate concerns. So an example would be, a basic example would be if you're, uh, you know, building a website and you have an API. An API will generally have more customers than just the website. Right. And so you, if you try to optimize for all of those customers, you will get a very different API in general than if you only optimize for the website and made every other person, you know, team that wanted to use your API a secondary kind yeah, of. Yeah, and then and then you're thinking about what you return. I mean, this is, you know, not to. Divert, not to go like too far into the weeds like specific mm-hmm. technologies, but this is something that's like a very powerful idea about uh, GraphQL was that instead of having to have this API, which like, you know, I've seen some versions where it's like, here's the API. And then it's like, here, oh, here's the light version of the API, which is the same as the main one, but with fewer fields, but it's like a different <laughs> endpoint. And it's like, okay, well, that, that's weird. But also I understand why, because in some cases you're going to make these like mega, like very oh, yeah. large objects right. that other consumers of it need that you don't. But something with GraphQL is like, okay, well, ask for what you need. And, you know, even if there are some like rough edges around it, asking for what you need is going to be a lot better. Like then, especially like I've spent a lot of time myself like coding where because I didn't own the back end, you know, the back end team is just someone else who didn't care about me. Right, right. Like, we're, we're, like I basically had to recreate a new API client side, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm going to make these three calls and then I'm going to like transform this data and do all of these things, which really could have been a single API call and like didn't need that many fields. So I think like there's one, I mean, one, it's like, okay, it's a new shiny and people like that. But also that powerful idea of ask for what you need and then treat giving you only the fields you need, treat that as an implementation detail rather than as like, the core, like rather than like a fundamental part of like the API. Yep. Yep. No, that makes sense. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I start noticing, you know, certain just changes that like start happening uh, once we start building these projects. 
and um yeah and i noticed just that our our um iteration cycle was much faster because we had now basically made this um uh, this team structure happen through the technology itself that now for the first time at least from what i saw at the, you know at amazon during that period was um you had a front end team that could like make a lot of decisions on yeah, the could uh, actually right? get th- could like right. <laughs> i can i can remember cases where it was like the gamma the, you cannot do you can't load anything locally mm-hmm. you can't mock anything locally it's just mm-hmm. all one big piece mm-hmm. and sometimes they and so it's like okay well you're developing against like beta or gamma and the team that owns that doesn't like they keep production going, but beta and gamma are breaking all the time. Right. And so you just have a situation where it's like, okay, I can't do any work today. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what do I go home or what, what do I do? I, I literally, I don't, I don't have, I can kind of code a little bit on my own, but it's, it's this very, you know, I mean, I think that's the best separation of concerns is also decoupling and thinking about like being able, like, who can work in parallel without each other? How do you reduce your number of dependencies? How do you make it so that I, I just really come back to like different concerns, not needing to interact with each other mm-hmm. as much during development um, yeah. about things that really they, sh- they should be able to decide on their own. Yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly right. And uh, I also noticed uh, as a result, you know, the, the team would also, the front end team, uh, you know, and the back end team would sort of think a little bit independently. So if we wanted a feature of some kind in the website, uh, the the front end team was sort of like um, would think how they can implement it first. And so they would often, uh, you know, they would start, they would often go to things that maybe would have been foreign before. So an example would be, you know, should I consider using local storage as an example? Right. Uh, because before they were, you know, what would happen is. I, and it just depended, but the backend champions on the team may say, may obviously gravitate towards something oh, they, that's not they, client heavy at they all. They always had an argument where it was like session state is a server side concern. And it was mm-hmm. like, it, it, most, like very often it is not. And the yeah, reason yeah. that you think session state is because every single page is totally non dynamic and you're like moving through different pages. And every single page is a full page reload. And if every single page is a full page reload, then in fact, session state is a server-side concern because you're constantly blowing away. You need to capture everything that someone has done on the page and then communicate it to the server and then inject these values into the next page statically. And then like, it's, you know, there are use cases for it, but in most cases, uh, it's like after Ajax, all of those things became obsolete. Mm -hmm. And I think it took people a long time to realize that maybe you don't like, <laughs> yeah. maybe there's another way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, things are rarely black and white that way. So, yeah. um, but yeah, no, so that, that because of those changes, a lot of people then started noticing, Oh, like this seems to be working. Um, and then on my managers, I think were more supportive. Um, and yeah, like, and again, the team took a gamble and like they did put in a lot of effort to make all of this work. And so I think it paid off as a whole because I think the team was also invested in, you know, making sure, sure it works, which was awesome. I think. Yeah. And, and now you yeah. are, you've tied this sort of team and their success and their, like you've tied it to this new technology. And so they see raising the profile of this technology as sort of similar to raising their own profile. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. and, you know, the more adoption you get, the easier your job gets because it's mm-hmm. like 
you, you're not having to like rewrite every you know everything in Node yourself now if other people are like gravitating to it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, again, like, yeah, I think um, without all that support, it would have been pretty difficult. I think, and yeah, and in a lot of cases, I think still there were a lot of people who did not think this was a good idea, and it often came in when they ran into a blocker and they didn't fully understand Node.js or JavaScript, especially. And so they're trying to debug something and like, you know, it was sort of like frustrating and they, they kind of always went to, uh, oh, I wish this was just like, or, you know, we didn't yeah, do it this well, way. We found a bug. <laughs> uh, uh, let's rewrite the entire service in Java. And it's like, did you try to debug it? They're like, no, I think it would be faster to rewrite exactly. the entire service in Java. And it was not always a logical argument, right? Like the problem was always something more than just the language. It was rarely, I, in my experience also early days, I rarely found an issue or a bug. That was originating from like the core APIs or the no, it, you know the underlying system. It, there, there's yeah. there's a definite and it become it can become a very much like a self fulfilling prophecy mm -hmm. where people go okay I'm not going to read very many of the docs and I don't like this language and I'm just going to sort of hack my way through it and they do but they do a bunch of things wrong and then they go you see this thing sucks right. and it's like <laughs> are you sure you know, are you sure it's the language? Like, and it's like, the reason it sucks is because you did everything wrong. You didn't read any docs. You're totally disconnected from the larger ecosystem. And so you have all of these problems, which are like unique to you because no one else would do things in this way. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be hard. I mean, for sure. Um, you know, I thought about that myself a few times because I was like, oh my God, you know, it's like so many problems to deal with here. But um, once we, yeah, once we got past, I think, all these problems were solvable once we got past i mean i even had to once i remember um i had to like reverse engineer and like learn about a protocol that was just very very uh it, it was just very hard so I, I don't know if you've heard about kerberos before mm -hmm. but kerberos is you know uh is something that was used in the enterprise you know and many companies have it and and integration with that was... Oh, go ahead and explain it a little bit. Uh, sure. Uh, not so, everyone has seen this curve. It's like errors and been like, why, why can't I get in? Like yeah, that. so in short, yeah, short summary, it's Kerberos's or the way it, it, it's, it was applied here was mainly, uh, it, it was a form of single sign-on. So it sort of managed, it allowed you to sign on if you're within the network and it sort of figured out um, whether, um, you know, who are you as a user and it was sort of like an authentication scheme, but there was no sign-in required uh, beyond, uh, sorry, there was no sign-in required after you signed in once. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but it was it was this kind of, it was a protocol that, you know, um, is from the 90s and it's something that's, uh, it's, a, it's a, I won't go into too much detail, but one of the things that was really critical to understand is that protocol is, you have to like really understand it to implement it. And it's not as simple as, um, you know, like it's not all any in any way really service oriented uh, or rather right. it doesn't it's use from a previous year. I mean, yeah, from a previous year, it's the same thing when people talk yeah. about POSIX and it's like, oh, it's great. Like it's, you know, it, it works, but, user, mm -hmm. but also it has all of these other like concepts and abstractions and like yeah, it wasn't, features that yeah. don't apply to you anymore, but you're still kind of stuck with. Yeah, it wasn't the yeah, it was not as simple as calling a service and just like you get a response and you do stuff with it. It was it was you had to have this like cohesive exchange with <laughs> these entities, right? And 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 then there was like a specific protocol for uh like understanding what they're sending you, what you need to send them. And I had to like essentially study it. And the problem, the reason I had to go study it is routine, you know, 
time and time again, I had patched everything else, <laughs> right? But this was one thing that kept coming up constantly and everyone was just like, nobody's going to be able to figure no, this nobody out. Nobody wants to touch it because it's like, this yeah. is a hard problem. And nobody's going to be able to figure that out because someone has to spend at least a week or more learning about that's, it. Which that's was a scary a, thing. It's a very scary thing. It's and uncertainty where it's like, this is, am I going to spend a week on it? Grind, like read a lot, grind really hard and then hit some problem that I can't solve? Like that's scary. Yeah, and and as a result, like the the challenge was if I, if we did not solve this, the fact is a big use case, you know, for us was, or for anyone, you know, in the company was always building internal tools. Everyone did that. It was, it, it's a very fast and easy way of, you know, you would, all of our, most of our web apps inter, were internal tools. Yeah. And so if we didn't solve this, they would have to do something like more hacky or more, involved where they would have to have a java layer and a node layer and they would be like yeah would, why I've, am i doing this i've seen this before it, it it really i've seen both sides of it i've seen something where honestly the node layers may be super you know it's like the mm -hmm. node layers is superfluous one and then i've seen other ones where actually node first and then the java came second mm -hmm. and it's like oh well is there any technical justification for this and they're like right. well we don't like the other one like that's like yeah. that becomes the, the justification yeah so yeah so i had to spend like a lot of time understanding the protocol and uh, and then finally implementing it and then when it worked it was amazing in that it was just uh, yeah it was uh yeah everyone was very shocked at that but <laughs> <laughs> i'm shocked till this day because <laughs> you know it was just like it was so much work and then uh but but then what happened is it became kind of like the standard way people would do single sign-on mm for the node web apps until we kind of you know ended up replacing that whole thing sure um, but i mean but it still, pro still provides value for you know this like you you have this is a problem that you have to solve yeah, it's but not that's the cost like that's you have to have some amount of i would say conviction that if you want a new technology to get adopted within your company or whatever whichever group you're aiming for you have to have the conviction that okay you know like even if things go south you are going to give it a shot like and stay on it until it's very it's either completely impossible to do but most of the time like there's very few problems like that where you know you cannot solve them it's yeah. just it's just you have to stay on it and not give up and then yeah you know, <laughs> believe in yourself <laughs> like hang in there like it's, no it's just no, a matter of no time, no but yeah. really you you do yeah you like and then i want to pivot a little bit yeah, is, yeah. um or not pivot uh, change gears <laughs> yes sir there we go uh pivot something totally different uh, um is, so change gears a little bit. And so how do you, this is maybe kind of an, an odd question, but how do you think maybe your, your champing of Node.js or your champing of like, you know, a new technology, like how do you think that impacted your career at Amazon? Um, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it impacted my career both positively or negatively. I think it, the reason I, I, I was just attracted to, you know, I, I saw it as a solution for a lot of things, not problems necessarily, but definitely massive improvements in productivity and, you know, things like that at Amazon. Right. And so from my perspective, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was just, uh, it just seemed logical to do it. Um, it made just a lot of sense. And right. So it, it wasn't yeah. like you're promoting some new shiny and then everybody goes, oh, wow, what a cool toy. And then you get, a, it's like, you're using this to meet business needs for your stakeholder and like you're getting, you know, more reliability or like, you know, better, better velocity as a developer, better perform. Like you're yeah, it was definitely, problem solving. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely the latter in the sense that I would say I, I kind of looked at it as, oh, I, you know, if I, if I wanted to just improve my, how my time was being used, 
and what my you know how my peers like time was being used and if that could just go at amazon scale that would be interesting if it even if it didn't happen i would have been happy with just you know um it at least impacting my immediate team sure um but yeah no what i think what i enjoyed the most was when i you know i, I gave a few more uh, maybe two more presentations after and like did a few meetups and things like that uh where i then now had projects to show like people so the thing that i enjoyed the most was i found that in essentially and i found this this like later on like maybe a few years down the line where there were just these people who attended all these talks who talked to me who then like met with me separately meetups you know all sorts of things they eventually became the champions of nordjs in their own um like like org or right so you you were sort of planting the seed introducing people who maybe were kind of you know the fact they're showing up to like a meetup you know yeah they were already interested they're definitely interested all it took was a little push you know and 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 the thing is though like and again to their own credit they all did their own things sure and uh, you know they sort of because of the all of them um you know certainly a lot of these you know different orgs and teams were certainly all utilizing nordjs this this and this took like several years right and and so that's the other thing is is when you do some of these things you know the, the results only show up <laughs> and often you don't realize them it just happens and one day you're like oh my god like that, well, you know how so did this happen it, it, it yeah so it's not like um you know you did some like study of okay previous languages like how how did they succeed or fail but it wasn't I guess it wasn't like okay, this is year three of the five-year plan, right? It was like yeah, no, nothing was, like that. But I sort of just took certain steps that I thought would um, create those network effects. But I, you know, there was no guarantee or anything like that, or not did I check on them or anything, you know? Sure. It was sort of like what would be the best thing to do at you know yeah. at, at this point. And yeah. And then in terms of like other planning, like you're currently a um, like a senior uh, software development manager, um, but you know, at Amazon, there's at least two paths you can take as a developer. You can say, okay, I want to, you know, I want to do management, or you can say, I want to be, you know, like architect, you know, like principal engineer or something like that. And then I guess there's maybe a third one where like, I want to be a PM, you know, like you have at least three options. It's not the way that I think the way it used to be was that you could only get so much seniority as a developer before it was like, they would kind of pressure you to be in management, or you'd have to get like some very special dispensation. Whereas now developers really have a lot more career choices, like they're not pushed into management. Mm -hmm. So like as you're going along, you know, like 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, like did you, do you feel like you consciously gravitated towards, you know, like one or the other, or were you really looking, were you open to both and seeing like which opportunities were more available or like where you could have more impact? Uh, Yeah, no, that's a good question. Honestly, I was I was always on the engineering path. Uh, sorry, mm. uh, the sort of the uh, the principal engineer mm. path. So like true engineering kind of path. So um, oh, is, so you you actually were like you had a diversion. You like in your yeah, head, like yeah, in in your yeah. head in 2013, you were like I could be a principal engineer one day. Or like, I, no, or that's I mean, what I, I do. well, I don't know if I could be one, but, but I was. No, but that's, more, yeah, that's exactly. your career goal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it was my career goal uh, in that I wanted to be on that path, and I I just like liked um, solving technical problems, and it was you know it was it was a lot of fun, and didn't feel like work. So then, so. yeah, I mean, I love it. Like, so <laughs> yeah, then, exactly. Then, so then, how did you get? Because I'm I'm still you know I'm in that headspace where like mm-hmm. I really can't imagine being mm-hmm. a manager because it seems like a you know a difficult 
thankless job. <laughs> um, so like, or at least, I mean, or it, it's not as, there's something very calming about sitting down and like writing code for like eight hours and like, and you just push it, you get a couple, whereas like management feels a lot more kinetic where there's a lot, there's, there's a lot more people you got to connect to. There's a lot more like things that are sort of fiddly that are not as like under, solely under your control. Sure, sure. So, okay. So how did you get diverted from this path? Like, how did you? Uh, yeah, it was interesting. So, um, I, yeah, I had this, uh, yeah. So, so I think it was 2014 or 15, I forget now, but I, I had like this, uh, uh, certainly life-changing event uh you know i had to I had to go on leave of absence for a bit and then i came back and I, it was a little bit not in the right mind i guess at the time i was just sort of uh and the specific life-changing event was when my dad passed away mm. and so i you know i came back and i was just like way sort of i kind of looked at that and um i i was thinking oh my god like you know i really need to you know s- you know stop uh, I need to really make sure I'm like doing stuff that, um, um, uh, like, uh, like I'm not pushing things, you know, too far out. I am like, like I should be prioritizing and making sure I'm making the most of my time. And so I was in that kind of headspace at that time. Sure. And what happened was, um, uh, like my manager actually like left when I came back. And so I just started naturally, you know, like kind of leading the team at the time. And I'm basically kind of pseudo managing them at the time, but I had like no intention of carrying that forward. Right. It's just sort of, um, oh, I can fill in. And then, that's right. and then also you, I mean, I guess your, your sort of mental like headspace is, is very different after that. Like I definitely know, like after something major happens, it, it does, it's your coding brain is not separate from the rest of your mm-hmm. brain. Like I think, I think of coding as like a very like almost emotional activity right, and like, right. you know, like your gut. And, and so, yeah, if you're feeling know like that i mean that kind of thing and that kind of like existential contemplation like it's yeah no it's so i i think that maybe made me open to more things Hmm. is because i think before i you know kind of was like oh i have the set path and i'm you know i'm gonna do this when i'm 30 and this one you know again it was not that well planned but it was sort of you know in your sort of idealized version you were like this is it yeah exactly um and so i was certainly open to more things because i thought oh man like you know it's um both life is too short, but also there's just no guarantees, right? Um, and this was my kind of my first like really big lesson, I would say. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I came back, I was like much more open-minded and like what opportunity would come in. Uh, and so I was like managing my team at the time and they were all like, you know, like peers that I worked with. So I, I enjoyed, you know, kind of helping them out and making them more successful, that sort of thing. Um, and my director at the time, he was like, uh, he called me in one day and he said, you know, I'm like looking, you know, I'm trying to hire, you know, a replacement for your previous manager, but I think you should give it a shot. And I was basically, I was like, you know, um, were you blushing? <gasps> me? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was weird because I, I hadn't even given it a thought before. And so I was sort of like, uh, I didn't know what to say. And so I said, oh, you know what, I'll give, you know, I'm not sure if I want to do this long term, but, you know, I'll give it a shot because what the hell, right? Like, I, and and so he said, uh, you know, no, no problem, you know, give it a shot if in two months you don't like it, like, you know, we can change things and move on. So I was like, sure. Like, and, I, and I think yeah. that's also another great thing about modern development culture is, you know, in, in, in the old days, it was like, yeah, you weren't... It was like, okay, since manager is higher than engineer, if we promote you to manager and you don't like it, 
then we're going to demote you back to engineer. And it's like, it's like you've somehow failed. And it's like, no, I just, these domains are, are not necessarily that related to each other and everyone yeah, has a different. Yeah, yeah. So I think like, yeah, that's it's a, great. It's a, like it's, yeah, it's, it's I, flat. I, yeah. It, it's a lateral path really. And because the kind of skills you have to learn and, and, and prioritize are just so different. Um, so yeah, so I, I, so I tried managing the team for two months and the thing is because that I had worked with this, that team on, you know, side by side and for, you know, a lot of them had been around for, you know, at least like two plus years, I think. I, I feel I was more invested also in their, su- oh, sure. their success. And then by that time I had had many managers really, like I had gone through a lot of different managers. So I picked sort of like, you know, what are the things that I, um, liked or disliked when I was an engineer that I kind of saw from them, learned from them or experienced myself. And so my management style was very simple is I was just trying to optimize on that, which is as an engineer, would I want this? Would I not want this? And that's how I basically made most decisions. Which is, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's like, that's a wonderful skill set. And, but then I guess you have a second skill set because like the first one is, okay, this is how I would want to do things. You know, if this is how I want my manager to do things if I was an engineer, but then now that you're in management, you're also talking to these other people who like, a lot of times as an engineer, you view these other figures as just sort of like vague, shadowy figures where it's like, I, I'm not entirely sure what they do. I see them in meetings a lot. You know, I see them in meetings. I see them like ask questions, but I don't really interact with them and I don't really like know or care what they think. Um, and I mean, in some cases it's like, they're just so separate, you know, it's like, they're like, uh-huh. they're like doing biz- business development and it's like, okay, so I guess they're helping get company, you know, they're doing things that are important, but it's just things that as a developer, you just don't even, you know, you like as a developer, you can't necessarily say like, okay, what is the revenue? Like, what is the bottom line impact of my product? I'm like, I don't know. People seem to like it. You know, like that's, yeah, yeah. so now you have the second set where now you like, how did you find talking with like, you know, people who are totally non-technical, maybe from like, you know, uh, just a very different background. Like they, they have, you know, like a master's in business administration or, you know, they came up through the ranks of Amazon's like non-technical. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's interesting. I, yeah, I think for engineering teams and this may seem very obvious, but I, I quickly saw that the one commonality between like kind of like, you know, what I found as good managers versus bad managers, at least with engineering was always that they were very strong uh, individual contributors before they were managers. As in, even after they were managers, they could do stuff right for their team they were not like never for a lack oh. of better term like they were not like useless or like what well, i mean you know, that sort of yeah thing. i would yeah. say it's like there are some there's sort of i think of managers in sort of the three classes where you have their technical mm-hmm. and it's still relevant and they can still do things mm-hmm. i mean like uh i was on a, a team in, in your org and i like i was just like am i in heaven when the manager was like yeah there's a problem with our webpack config i fixed it and pushed it and i was like oh this is so great. Like, this is amazing. And And then, yeah. yeah, And you have people who are like ex technical where it's like, they were a dev at one point, they can tool around in the terminal, they can grep logs, but like they were writing like Perl in 1998, like nothing against Perl in 1998, but just, it doesn't necessarily help them. You know, it helps them with general concepts, but they're not going to be able to get into the details. Yeah. And I think that was very important because uh, a huge part of your job, I think, is to, uh, in some ways, empathize with the code and the experience of the developers sure. on the team or across teams. And if you cannot do that, you cannot be a good manager. But then there's the third category, right? Which mm-hmm. is people who are, you know, like 
non-technical the whole time. They've never, you know, maybe they moved from like PM to manager or they were hired from a company that is just not a tech company. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, they, you know, they've, they've been a director before, sure, but they've never been a director at, you know, it's like they were selling washing machines or whatever, you know, it's like, it's, it's different. Right. And, and so that one is interesting. So what I've noticed is, uh, you rarely find, uh, uh, middle management to be that way as in it's like way way rare if not almost impossible to have line low managers be non-technical just they can't yeah. survive it's, it's like it's, their team would essentially uh have a hard time dealing with that because you, you have to be very close to what you're shipping I, i've seen it but, i've only seen it work once and mm -hmm. it was almost like um it was almost like a, it was almost like they were like a psychic they were like they were like they were a cold read they were like i'm uh -huh. sensing that you're reluctant to <laughs> criticize the team that owns the SQL database. I'm like, how did you do that? You know, it's like, but yeah. it, it's, it's, but it's like, that is a much rarer skill set. It's very rare. Um, but uh, the skill set you need is very similar to what you would expect if you're a senior uh, manager or a director and you're, you know, come from a product background or a non-technical background is you still have curiosity. And so you learn how to, you know, how something works because, and, and in that situation, you ask a lot of questions, but in order to get that knowledge, you know, or you at least have a strong technical person on that team. Sure. Who is, who is the person you talk to or rely on? And what I notice is if you're a line level manager in that sense, you have to rely on a SDE who can tell you everything. And, yeah, and then even then, kind of the, the high judgment. I've, I've had a person. situation where I wanted to tell a manager who was you know, effectively non technical. I don't, you know, I don't know what the original background was. I was like, how do I tell you that your engineers are lying to you? Yeah. No, <laughs> like, and I was like, I'm not on your team. I'm not going to fix it, but they're just lying. Yeah. They're saying things that are not true. And like, even if I tell you this, what choice do you have? Like you, what, you're going to believe me over them. And then that's the, so that's like, the hardest thing. And, and again, I, there's not a great solution there, but I've seen this many, 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 many times mm. where, um, they're non-technical people and even with the best intentions, the best questions, unless they have a strong technical, you know, partner who they, they trust for some reason, either for, yeah. because of experience, because they found that they were high judgment individuals or, or just, in the just, past. Sometimes you just have a very strong or team lead. Yeah. Or it's just, just a strong team lead. And they, there's some prior data that, you know, you weren't around to notice witness, but there is, you know, other people who you trust to tell you that. If you don't have that, then you often run into situations where you don't know what go what's going on really. And yeah, a lot of people like lie to you or you can't verify them fully. Uh, you can't, you know, come up with alternatives, things like that. Right. You, you, it's hard. It's really hard for you to dive deep because it's like yeah. you are missing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like and if, and if it all goes well, then you can have like a nice symbiosis. But if that's missing, then it's like that, I think. Yeah, I think that it's very hard for those managers to survive. And I think that they they perceive the situation to be like more chaotic and uncertain yeah. and beyond their control because they just it's like they're staring at the inscription, but they can't read it. Yeah, no, things develop that way. So I, I encountered many, many projects in the past um, and even projects now where when I look at it, just because I know the tech and how the code would operate and everything, I look at it and I'm like, oh my God, like what, what, what are yeah. they doing with their life? And, uh, and, and I'm telling you any high judgment engineer would look at that and say the exact same thing, but clearly the project prolonged because 
in many instances because either uh, you know like uh, you know either someone on the team you know wanted to push that forward really hard and the non-technical person was not in a place or either they didn't have the knowledge or they trusted the wrong people that they could not challenge that decision um and it just kept going on and on and on and like a lot more pe- lots more people could get poured into it yeah and i've seen this many many times and it's uh it it just um it, it, you know it ends it always ends up in disaster but i mean they ship something at the end of the day yeah. so hopefully I, yeah but it it causes just a lot of churn and you know it's it's a very risky thing to have overall so you you want to make sure that you you really have a good setup there if you're a non-technical yeah you you like, have to attach yeah. yourself to someone who not just who like management likes mm-hmm. and who you know management goes they're great mm-hmm. but someone who you can see that like other engineers respect mm-hmm. and defer to and like you've got to find someone like that because you you yeah you you know you you have to have you have to have an in like that. oh yeah, yeah and yeah. and you a lot of times the people who management likes uh, are not necessarily the people who other engineers um, view as like the sort of thought leaders or, or the person with the most, you know, the person with the soundest judgment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting actually. Um, Like I, you know, in the course of like the last few years, I encountered a lot of very strong product managers and like I learned a lot from them. And what I noticed was that this is the other thing, which is, um, to be a great product manager, you have to be able to ask very direct, deep questions about something. And it applies to even technical systems. Like the challenge that you run into is oftentimes with, with tech, um, unless you have written code yourself, there's just certain <laughs> abstractions that are not so, um, there is no corollary to them. There's no, there's no metaphors you can apply. There are often things that you know because you uh, know how the code would look. Um, and so great examples of that is, um, is, you know, a PM, for example, let's say comes in and they have to question a technical project, unless they're very good with data structures, they are not going to be able to come and say, suggest an alternate data structure that could be better. There's so many times where a PM has said something and everyone technical in the room is just like rolling their eyes and it's like, and it's like that. It's a, it's a very tough situation to be in, and and th- but that's the thing. I don't know what, and uh, I can't think of an alternative there, unfortunately. And so, and again, even the best PMs, right? They are very good at you know what they do, and they try to interpret like uh, you know like customer, like you know like again, they're a lot like a mind reader. They yeah. try to figure out what is the problem that customers have, and so that's a very different skill set, very human you know skill set. But then you come to like something like tech and it's, it's, it's such a domain specific knowledge that you need. Yeah. And, and, and without that, it's, uh, I, and that, that's the thing people think it, it, you know, there is a way to bridge that gap, but I have, I'm yet to find that I mean, situation. I think the only real yeah. answer is delegation, right? Delegation yeah, and that's coordination exactly right. yeah. and, you know, picking the right, identifying the right people and trusting them when you delegate these things to them, because like the micro, the micromanagement approach I've it has only ever ended in catastrophe when someone non-technical, even when someone technical tries to micromanage, it ends in catastrophe. Oh like, yeah, like, ab- absolutely. Like, like, yeah, like uh, you, yeah, no, I think the, yeah, this is the thing. When you manage, I think uh, people, the the main thing is it's a, it's a team sport and you're part of the team and you're trying to, you know, essentially you have to kind of treat everyone as a peer is how I would look at it. Even if you're a man- managing that team. And then your job is to essentially figure out how to make them all effective together. 
but you're still a peer you're part of the team and so you you know so as a result like the, the way you know when you delegate something it should feel like you're delegating to a peer and that that helps a lot because it, it's sort of like it's not a you need to do this otherwise you know it's the end you know like like you know like I, i'm gonna be mad at you or something like that but it's sort of it's it's like you would delegate tasks to someone who is working on a project right where you sort of like oh like you know i, I trust you so i'm you know like like you know what do you think about this or sure you're right? you're yeah you're not you're, it's a very different interaction yeah um, i mean with developers yeah. top down just very rarely works yeah, yeah it very rarely works you can't force tech you, you the problem is you can never be close to a problem you're not spending hours doing anyway <laughs> so you shouldn't pretend like you know unless you have spent that time. So if you want to question someone's like decision on something and do you know have some you know good arguments about it or good you know productive discussion about it, go do the work. Like go fig you know. So for example, when I wanted to really, really, I was hearing a lot about there was this one system we had where I was hearing a lot about you know issues that were that developers were having that I would hear in one on ones with them. The only way I could like, so I could empathize with what they were saying easily, no problem, because I knew what they were referring to. But I, you know, I went and did core changes on that thing. And then I really understood the impact, like yeah. as in like how dreadful it was. And you I found more things that were wrong with that whole thing. And so that helped a lot, right? So, and then I could go question a lot of things that were done a certain way and why, because I had done the work. And I, I think there's no substitute for that. Like, and so if you want to, you know, go in and question someone's decision or suggest something, you have to be close enough to the problem to be able to do that or have some prior experience that's, you know, allows you to bring in some alternatives, but otherwise you're just pushing in a decision without knowing all the constraints and things that are, you know, the, essentially what I would call, you know, say like the ground reality. Yeah. So yeah. we're, I have so many, we could keep going, but we, actually can't because uh yeah so many more questions i'll have to have you back on at some point but um yeah we we need to to wrap this up yeah um, sure but, thing. um yeah thank you so much for your time and that's just been really like mm, a lot of different facets here like so let's see um anything yeah wrapping up um do you have anything to promote are you is your org hiring? Is there anything you're? <laughs> yeah, you're sure. Doing? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Amazon advertising, which has been in the news recently, since our business is now has grown quite a lot. It's um, one, you know, now kind of, you know, one, probably the fourth pillar of Amazon at this point. So yeah, we are hiring. So I would recommend going to Amazon.jobs and searching for advertising. And uh, you know, we have a ton of open roles. And um, yeah, you can ping, you know, me or any any of the. Uh, the managers on those roles as well. And like, would be happy to, you know, walk you through. It's a very exciting business still in its like early days. So uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to do. So, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, Anka, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Duncan.